Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of High Low with Emrata. This is our solo episode we do on Thursdays, Emrata Asks. This is a topic I've been thinking about and talking about for a while now. It started back in the spring when I had bad baby Danielle on the podcast, and she talked a bunch about her personal experience and perspective with the troubled teen industry, something I really wasn't uh, familiar with until that point. She talked about the wilderness therapy that she attended um, as a result partly to her stint on the Dr. Phil show and some of the very harrowing experiences that she had there, including a staff member's death during her stay. So I've been looking to do an episode on the for-profit troubled teen industry ever since this conversation. And I found out um, about this book just in time for this episode. And luckily, we have been given the opportunity to interview the author. So on this week of Emrata Ass, we have Samantha Leach, who has just published a book called The Alyssa's Three Girls, One Fate, and the Deadly Secrets of Suburbia. It's on a ton of lists right now, Amazon's Best Nonfiction Book of the Month for June and Harper Bazaar's 23 Best Summer Beach Reads of 2023. I read a great review of it in the New York Times. There's a piece um, about it on Nylon as well. She's the entertainment editor at large at Bustle and has written for Glamour, Elle, and Nylon. So let's get into it with Samantha Leach. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the publication of your book. Can you talk about who the Alyssas are and why you felt compelled to write the story? Well, the basis of the Alyssas is that my childhood best friend, um, when we were sophomores, she was sent away to a therapeutic boarding school, which is part of the troubled teen industry. When she was there, she met two other young women, also named Alyssa. I will refer to Alyssa as my Alyssa, but the other two are A-L-Y-S-S-A, so I'll call her Alyssa with a Y and A-L-I-S-S-A. So Alyssa with the I. The three of them were best friends. They came from different levels of privilege, different suburban communities, uh, had their own different issues that brought them to the program. But they also shared a lot in common. They had matching Save Our Souls tattoos, which was their catchphrase, like inside joke of the program. And within eight years of graduation, all three had passed away. So my friend Alyssa passed away at 18 of encephalitis. Alyssa with the Y died at 23 of a combination meth and heroin overdose and Alyssa with the eye died of she had a series of three grand mal seizures and then went into renal failure she struggled with addiction um later on though was five months sober at the time of her death and none of these deaths occurred at the programs no it was it was all in the years after 
Alyssa passed away within a year of graduation, but the others were considerably longer after that. And uh, when did they pass away, the other two Alyssas? They passed away um, in all four-year succession. So the second Alyssa died at 23 and the following one at 26. They were all, like, give or take within the same year, like, would be 30 if they were alive today, but, like, born at different times in the year. So it played out that they were 18, 23, and 26. My entry point to the story was when my friend Alyssa died of encephalitis. I became really obsessed with her Facebook page. I don't know if you remember, like, about, it's been about 10 years, no, 12, wow, 12 years now since she passed away. And back then there was, like, no policing around Facebook memorial pages. I think now when someone passes, it'll say remembering them. But back then you could just post anything, you could share, you could, you know, there was really no regulation. And I became completely transfixed by her page. I never posted on it. I had a lot of feeling of feeling that I was above it. And that was some weird manifestation of my grief and wanting to feel close to her. But I read everything that came in. And the ones that struck me the most were by these two other women, Alyssa and Alyssa, because they really treated her page as if it was both an oracle to the afterlife as well as their own diary. They'd write to her messages like, I'm 76 days clean because you're looking down on me, angel hashtag save our souls. And that was, you know, really wanting to understand who these women were, the importance they played in their lives, even what save our souls meant back then was really important to me. And then later, as I discovered that they'd passed away as well, that impulse just grew and grew to learn more. So I read that you'd been working on this book for almost eight years. What made you finally get to the finish line. Yeah, I started working on this book in college. It's taken on a ton of different forms. Initially, it was a chat book that I wrote in my intro to creative writing class. That Then it was really horrible wannabe Otesha Moshfeg short stories that I was writing at like advanced creative writing seminars. The one that became the most influential on the current book is when I was a sophomore in college, I took an anthropology of media class where I did an ethnography on Alyssa's Facebook page. So then I was not only, you know, I went back and referred to all those posts that I was talking to you about and I was copy pasting them in a Word doc, studying the language, friending these girls on Facebook to learn more about them and analyze their profiles as well. And by the time that I started to write the book or first percolating the ideas of having the book. It wasn't like I was checking Facebook regularly. I was much more of an Instagram girly by that point. But I had seen three years prior that Alyssa with the Y had passed away through a Facebook post. And then I logged on one day and had seen Alyssa with the I had passed away as well. And that was the moment where the story of my personal grief and something that I felt really compelled to tell from a part of an impulse of catharsis became something I think felt much greater and felt like there was real urgency to it. So it was really in learning of all three having passed that that was what propelled me to start writing. It's a shocking story. So we've been talking a lot about the troubled teen industry. We had Bad Baby on who actually everyone knows from Dr. Phil. But uh, what a lot of people don't know is that after she said that catch me outside phrase, she went to one of these places. How would you explain the troubled teen industry to someone who is unfamiliar with it? Yeah, the troubled teen industry is a network of private for-profit therapeutic boarding schools, wilderness programs, rehabs, and really any form of a behavior modification center. 
I think something that's really important to know is that the origin of this industry truly comes from a cult. There was a cult called Synanon in the 70s in Santa Monica. It started off, there was a man, Chuck Dieterich was his name. He was an addict. He became really obsessed with AA and he decided to recreate it. And he became really well known for helping people curb heroin addiction. I think he was one of the first people to use the AA model for something other than alcohol. What happened was, is he got really great rates of lack of relapse. And to keep that, he stopped letting people leave. It became an actual cult, an actual community, because the numbers don't change if you don't leave. One of the main principles uh, that gets talked about a lot with Synanon is what's called the Synanon game. And that is which they'd be, they would place someone in the hot seat like you're sitting today, and there'd be a group of people around you, and they would tell you everything you hated about yourself, or they assumed they did. If they told you had told a peer of yours a secret in confidence, they'd air it out to shame you. Say you hated your body, they'd start bashing you about that things from your past. And it's all to really break you down, shame you, so they can build you up again in their model and also to make you compliant. There was a member of Synodon named Mel Wasserman, who shortly after Synodon disbanded, they had committed a lot of crimes. He started CEDU, which is the first ever therapeutic boarding school, and it went on to be the model for all of them. So therapeutic boarding school primarily in many of these wilderness programs and various others that comprise the troubled teen industry use many of the practices from Synanon. Attack therapy is still used. There's many different names for it. Uh, For example, at Spring Ridge Academy, which is one of the schools that my friend Alyssa went to and was recently shut down, they called it being in the hot seat, as I just referred to it. So really, those are some of the main points to know. Another thing that I think is very essential to be aware of is because of the fact that this is for-profit and private, there's no governmental oversight or regulation, which enables people to use practices and things like attack therapy because there's no governing body preventing such measures from being taken. And there's a lack of therapists, qualified therapists, Mm -hmm. working at these camps and even designing the curriculum, right? Absolutely. Again, it goes back to this concept of governmental oversight, but if you're private for profit, you can hire anyone you want. Spring Ridge Academy in particular was run by a woman who then employed her son and daughter-in-law to be deputies. None of them had the credentials for it. I also think that having people without the proper background allows them to really keep themselves in the shadows. And I think, you know, we can speak more obviously about Bad Baby's incredible work in Paris Hilton's, but that's really, we're living in the first time where it's not a clandestine industry, but I think employing people who don't know what they're doing, not having government regulation, certainly not trying to, was really a way in which they were able to keep it in the shadows for so long. So what did you find out when you were doing your research around the Alyssa's and into the troubled teen industry with your personal experience? I I want to hear more about how it relates to the book. I mean, I learned so much. I think now people have a passing understanding of the troubled teen industry. But when I first set out to write this book, it was 2020. And you're familiar with the publication process. I wrote a proposal, which was just an outline of what I intended to do. And the week that we went to shop it was when Paris Hilton's documentary came out. So all of a sudden, people who did not know what the troubled teen industry was suddenly said, oh, the Paris Hilton thing. So prior to that, I really 
I always remembered bits and pieces of Alyssa's experience. I think I write about this in the book, this image of, I always envisioned it. I remember there was a lot of people who would have their shoes taken away if they tried to run away. So you weren't going to get far if you were barefoot in the desert. I had these little glimpses, but I had no idea. So when I finally got the book sold, the first thing I did was call Breaking Code Silence, which is the organization featured in This Is Paris. And I remember having a call with one of their volunteers there who became really my biggest ally advocate and helper throughout this process. And what he said to me was, you're not going to believe a lot of things I'm telling you on this because your mind truly can't fathom it. Accept that. And down the line, you'll have heard so much of it. You'll believe that to be true. You'll start to believe. Not that he didn't think I'd believe, but some of the practices, some of the abuses that occur were so unfathomable that it, it did take me time to begin to wrap my mind around it, which I also want to say not every therapeutic boarding school wilderness program is malicious. I think the way that I view them is negligent at best, abusive at worst, just because of the structure. There aren't structures there to make them anything other than negligent. You mentioned uh, Paris Hilton, um, and in the book, she is a huge part of uh, your story and your experience. And so much of this book is about Y2K and that, you know, time period that I also lived through. I think we're maybe the same age. They were wealthy, thin, sexually desirable women who the culture was obsessed with uh, the leaking of their sex tapes and um, seeing them fucked up stumbling out of clubs. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that time and how you think that ties into what you saw happen with the Alyssas? How much time do you have? I mean, it's my favorite. (laughs) Why, like talking about early outs pop culture is my favorite thing. I mean, to begin with, and I opened the book talking about this, but Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie were the framework in which I understood my relationship to Alyssa. Alyssa was a very larger-than-life, sexually desirable, outwardly slutty. That was sort of how I wouldn't call her not that now, but that was how we she identified at the time. And I was the Nicole. I was funny in comparison. I was the sidekick and really... I didn't feel like the catalyst of my own life. I felt like the way in which that I was seen, viewed, and paid attention to, and any social currency I had was through her, was through osmosis of being friends with Alyssa. And I, you know, seeing the simple life and being obsessed with it, I I think I refer to it in the book as like our finishing school, but also it was the model for which I lived. Also, as you know, you know, coming of age at that time, all of a sudden there was TMZ, there was Perez Hilton, it was 24-7 tabloid culture and coverage. And for the adults, when, you know, there was a, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes like viral on TikTok now, especially after Britney, where like Lindsay Lohan is on Letterman or something. I, I might be getting whichever talk show it was wrong. And he's just mocking her endlessly about having gone to jail and she's like please stop and then it's just like a punchline but to me whether it was paris's sex tape kim's the crotch shots any of it it just felt like a shortcut to fame Mm. i feel like this was either in your book or another essay you wrote you said something about the idea that even when everyone was laughing at them to you you still felt like they were winning i really identify with that because and i was i was thinking about that today i was like why did fame feel so desirable to me why was being that type something i wanted so badly at the time and i think it just was the ultimate version of being seen 
we all just wanted to be seen so badly. Yeah, like the most exposure in the world. Sign me up. Yeah, another essay I would like to write is about attention because it's such a conversation around attention and it's connected to women um, and attention whores, Mm -hmm. you know. You mentioned shame and I think that's an interesting theme in the book, but also just in what we're talking about um, around this moment where these women were being sell, you know, given attention. Mm -hmm. And so I would say celebrated in a certain capacity, but there was also so much shame. And I think that is a something that for femme identifying people really is a big part of their identity. Why do you think that is? And what's your experience with shame? All right, we will be right back after this with the author, Samantha Leach. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Shame permeates throughout this entire book. I mean, I think shame is the underbelly of the troubled teen industry. Talk about attack therapy. What is the number one thing that can break you down? Being shamed. In terms of celebrity and how I see it in my life, I am a really big fan of the C Word podcast with Lena Dunham and Alyssa Bennett. And I think they really do a good job of talking about in our culture. We love to build someone up, women, build someone up, build someone up, build someone up. And then the second that they slip up or they're too exposed or whatever it is, there's been enough positive headlines. Let's completely turn on them because it's just clickbait too. So, I mean, I think at the time I was, as I said, I was missing the fact that these women were really being shamed, but also internalizing it in many ways. Shame for me, I think something that I was very susceptible to. I talk about in the book, in eighth grade, Alyssa and I had gone to the same private school since we were three years old. And we'd started to get into a lot of trouble. And my middle school principal called us both in and he said to me, he was like, you know, you really need to get it together. You're not going to make it here if you don't shape up. There might not be a spot for you coming up like you really like you need to prove yourself. And to me, especially as somebody who did not have a lot of discipline in the home, that was the defining moment of, oh my God, I gotta get my shit together. I've never been called out in this way. I am mortified, like, let's go. And with Alyssa, there was no conforming. There was no, there was no sense of shame. She was not gonna get it together. So which then had her where she wasn't asked back and then later sent to therapeutic boarding school, I think, as much as there was a lot of shame thrown at her, she really did not break down in attack therapy. People would talk a lot about the fact that she would just sit there with a poker face. And I can envision that poker face. I know what it looks like. That was one of my favorite moments was like remembering that sort of mischievous face of hers that would not get broken down. And it really made her a target amongst the administrators because she was not going to see, you were not going to see her break. Um, She seemed in many ways, and I'm sure this wasn't true. I'm sure she just internalized it, but very much immune to shame outward facingly. And then that welcomed in more abuse basically, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Something that you wrote, you said having developed relationships with the parents and family of people who were a part of the troubled teen industry, you write, I've come to believe they were just as much victims of the troubled teen industry as their daughters were. What brings you to this conclusion? Because I think a lot of even the feedback we got from the Bad Baby episode was, and even with Paris Hilton is, uh, these parents, how could they do this to their children? Well, first of all, thank you for bringing that up because I think that's one of the most 
important but overlooked messages that I really wanted to get across in this book. If your child is struggling and you don't know what to do, there aren't a lot of resources for teens. I mean, even today, I think the statistic is three out of five teenage girls have expressed extreme feelings of depression or anxiety or unease, and yet we still are, there's think piece after think piece of looking for how to help them, and we still don't have the answers, and this is now 15 years after the era of the Alyssas. If you have the access and means, and this is back when these schools were really clandestine and kept in the shadows, if they're coming to you and saying, we can help your kids, and I include a passage in the book that I had found through very, I, it wasn't Breaking Code Silence, it was another nonprofit that really broke down the script these programs use. If you don't send your children here soon, they could end up dead in jail, just preying on every fear and insecurity that you have. It's an impossibly seductive premise to find a way to help them especially when you know you had people like dr phil who was very much revered at the time saying this is where you should send your children i completely understand the seduction of that and i really do believe that was coming from a place of just utter desperation and i think that's very important to underscore and they were i mean being sold something right that's the other thing Mm -hmm. to remember the for-profit part of it yeah i think you know i was i think about it sometimes when i'm like at sephora i'm looking at a beauty product and it's like two hundred dollars and i'm like okay it must be good the troubled teen industry at the time was ten thousand dollars a month you're spending so much money it's gotta be the best care i think what a trap absolutely a trap in the book you start by attending an Al-Anon meeting Mm -hmm. and you acknowledge some of your own demons and issues like the need to help people or heal or to protect them. And you write of your uh, late teen years, I spent so much time back then busying myself in the emotions of others that I'd neglected to learn about my own. I'm curious where you are with that journey, having written this book and published it. Did writing the Alyssa's give you the freedom and the confidence and the ability to be able to explore yourself? Yes, I think that this book really helped with my grief and putting some of that, not to bed, it's ever evolving, but I really feel in a better place than I ever have with my grief, as opposed to some of the stuff that I worked on in Al-Anon, this need to busy myself in the chaos of others my superpower feeling like I can handle that tough conversation. I can be there for you on that rough night of the soul, which is self-serving. I mean, I think that's something that I also identified more and more that like, yes, I want to be there for people, but I get something out of that too. I think about it a lot of sense. Shout out to my sister who I love uh, and I was talking to right before this, but like she's five years younger than me. I'm very much the older sister and I'm constantly giving her advice. She's just very messy. Love her to death. Love you, Ari. But she's just like always got a problem, which drives me nuts. But also like I get off on it because I get to feel the perfect one in comparison. I get to problem solve and that's where I have my confidence. I don't feel cured of any of that because of the book, but being able to identify that in myself and notice it is a world of difference and it offers a lot of relief. I think there's so much honesty and vulnerability in the book. And if you are someone who grew up in, I think, you know, obviously as a millennial, definitely there's a lot to take. But even now, I think Gen Z readers will relate to the pressures and the culture and the honesty that you have around 
you know, um, your relationship to shame. Their Alyssa's relationship to shame um, is really powerful, and I'm excited for people to read the book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Thank you. This was a blast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Everyone, go and grab a copy of the Alyssa. There's so much more I'd love to talk to you about, Lisa Tadeu and etc. But we'll save that for another episode. Definitely. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Samantha Leach for sharing her experience and perspective on the troubled teen industry and talking to me about her new book, The Alyssas. I want to hear what you have to say about this episode and how these issues have played into your own lives and lived experiences. We have a lot of Gen Z listeners, but we also have some millennials. I'm curious about your experience with Y2K um, culture. And if you have been somebody who's been to one of these camps, would love to hear from you. I take your voice notes and your messages and play them on the show, answer your questions and respond to your comments every week for the Talkback episode. That's the subscription episode that comes out every Thursday. So go leave your voice notes on hilo.fm or by calling our Hilo hotline at 42hilo4. If you're listening through Spotify, feel free to weigh in through the Q&A feature in the app or let me know your thoughts with the hashtag Hilo. Go to hilo.fm to send me your thoughts on what I've talked about today and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or at hilo.fm to listen every Thursday to that subscription episode. So thanks again, and we will see you on Tuesday. Hilo with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment and Bitch Era Media production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Ratajkowski, Matt Raz, and Sarita Wesley. Our showrunner is Matt Raz. Our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh.